Hey everybody, welcome again to another episode of F This Movie. My name is Patrick Brownlee, I am joined tonight for a discussion of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing by the most militant black man I know, JB. Fight the power. Fight the power, indeed. You can find our podcasts and website at fthismovie.blogspot.com. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fthismovie. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash fthismovie. You can find 100 of our shows in the iTunes store by searching F This Movie, but to find all of our past episodes, go to fthismovie.blogspot.com. And as always, you can email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can lean out your front window and begin to scream about how much you love F This Movie. Really scream, and eventually someone will call the police. We're going to be talking about Do the Right Thing, but before we get into all of that heavy-handed race-baiting, um, JB, have you seen anything good lately? Well, yes and no. Okay! And you were there. Fun. Um, oddly enough, we've been uh, podcasting the Music Box Massacre. Yes. But not the Music Box Massacre's evil twin, right. the Sci-Fi Spectacular. Which usually was held at the Music Box, but this year was held at the Venerable Portage Theater last Saturday. Right. It feels like, doesn't it? <laughs> it may be longer ago than that, depending on when this show runs. Oh, at an indeterminate time, <laughs> said Inspector Spacetime, um, there was a sci fi spectacular, I believe this was number six, and uh, it was put on by Rusty Nails, who we love. And it was, let's say, a mixed bag. What? Uh, let's talk about the lineup because these are the same movies that I saw. Basically, um, first was the original Roger Corman Little Shop of Horrors, which I had never seen. That was my first viewing of that movie. I did not know that. I've seen the musical a bunch of times. I was in the musical in high school. I don't really like the musical. Um, now the movie was made basically on a bet, correct? That yes. he could shoot a movie in two days? Yes. I, that thought was in the back of my head the whole time I was watching it. That's amazing. And um, I am I know this isn't original to me. Um, Danny Perry brings this up in his book, uh, Cult Movies, which is out of print, but you can easily get it, and it's amazing. Patrick read many of the essays a long time ago in this shitty little film study class he took in high school. And... Perry points out that beside the fact that it's amazing that they shot it in two days, the actors come across as this sort of repertory company that have been playing with each other for years. The way they play off each other, it's like you've been doing this on stage for a year. Right, right. I mean, they were so prepared, sort of, and, and comfortable with one another. And the movie is goofy and... All of the, like, exterior nighttime stuff doesn't work. No. But all the stuff in the store or in Seymour's apartment, all that stuff is really great. I was really surprised at how um, funny and entertaining the movie was. Because, again, it's one of these movies that sort of gets written off as being this bad movie that was made in two days for super cheap. And it's goofy. It's about this man-eating plant, blah, blah, blah. Um, So I was prepared for something worse, especially having seen some of Roger Corman's early cheap movies. And first of all, I wonder if the staginess of the flower shop scenes, that's the primary location, right. is part of what inspired that team to say, you know, this could be right. a right. stage musical right. because it's not 80 locations. But also, um, 
what I compare it to is Bucket of Blood, which mm-hmm. I had seen several times, but had never seen in a real movie theater with an audience until Rusty showed it yeah. at a at a massacre and Bucket of Blood. Yeah, <laughs> bucket of blood. Say that ten times fast. Bucket of blood plays. It plays yeah. really good for an audience. Yeah. In fact, I would argue that Little Shop of Horrors is funnier. Yeah, and that it would have gone over better if the print had been better. I think the print really prevented a lot of people from. There were a lot of problems. The print was really bad. the The sound was actually difficult to make out. The theater was making a, a loud noise for the first half hour of the movie. So there were a lot of distractions, I think. But I think you're absolutely right. I think the movie might have gone over even better um, if the conditions had been better. And I thought this sort of polarized this whole film versus video argument. Um, I know two weeks ago I included a link in um, Shitting on the Classics, The Three Stooges, to this amazing L.A. Weekly article about if film is phased out, what will that mean? And I thought um, at the Sci-Fi Spectacular, we had a really good example of that because I applaud Rusty's decision to show a print. Mm -hmm. I've certainly never seen a print of it. Mm -hmm. But I know that morning, driving to the Portage, I thought, I just assumed it would be video projection. Mm -hmm. And there have been other shows at the Portage where whatever they're using for the video projection, I have a better copy at home and wish I had brought it. So in the last trailers from hell, Mm -hmm. the bonus feature is Little Shop of Horrors, the first time it's ever been letterboxed on home video. Right. Looking at the sci-fi spectacular, I would have rather they showed that. Yeah. But maybe I'm in the minority. Yeah, it's a tough one because that is always the appeal for me is the chance to see some of these movies projected on film. You know, versus uh, video, because I always feel like, well, I can just get that at home. But you're right, the print had seen better days, as had, as had um, a few of the prints at this year's show. Yeah, the um, the Jack Nicholson performance in Little Shop of Horror still plays. And I wonder if that's one of the things that attracted Bill Murray to play that part um, in the musical, because it's sort of an honor to, to play right. this sort of famous little part. And then they showed The Last Starfighter which I had not seen since it was originally released. Yeah. Almost 30 years? 28 years? I think it was 84 that movie came out. 28 years. Okay, that surprises me, because maybe because of the nature of the film itself, I just assumed I was younger. Mm -hmm. I can't see myself sitting through that. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't think it held up. Okay. I still do, but chances are I'm just carrying residual affection because I watched it a lot as a kid. I think we're going to wind up adding this to the F this movie glossary because this has been coming up more and more residual affection (laughs) for a film that you watched as a child. Right. I am not going to try to talk to the eight year old version of you and talk you out of your taste. Right. Um, I applauded sort of, I wouldn't say the film is earnest, but I applauded how good hearted it was. And that's always what I have liked best about it. I would, yeah, I was going to say sincere, but earnest, I think, might be a better description. I agree with you that it drags and that it the action sequences are never very exciting or as energetic or lively as they probably need to be to carry the movie. I like the stuff that is between all the action sequences. And then you think, boy, if they had, they had some great, you know, space battles or something, the movie would be pretty terrific. And those space battles are never very good. (laughs) 
but for a boy's adventure film, which yeah. is what I would classify it as, yeah. it has some nice lessons for, for young mm-hmm. people. And I like uh, a lot of the performances. I like Lance Guest as the kid. I have a thing for Catherine Mary Stewart, so uh, Robert Preston is very entertaining. Uh, what's his name? Under All the Makeup. Um, um, oh, Dan O'Hurley? Yeah, there yeah, you go. Under All the Makeup as Grig. Uh, I I just like the movie. It's you know a Star Wars knockoff, basically. I mean, it doesn't necessarily follow the same beats, but Star Wars made this kind of science fiction popular again, and this is just cashing in on that. Very but, definitely. Uh, and I yeah. really like the scene where Lance Guest is to Lance Guest. Right. I, I thought that worked really nicely. All the stuff with the Beta Unit, yeah, is good. After the last Starfighter, they showed Brazil, which I had never seen. Uh, projected on film. I'd never seen it in a, in a theater and it had been years since I had seen it at all. And in some ways it was almost like watching it for the first time because, you know, I watched it on VHS or DVD years ago, possibly even Laserdisc. Um, and I had forgotten so many of the things that I like about that movie. That movie's unbelievable. It's a, it's a masterpiece and I hadn't seen it in so long. I discovered that my memory of the film was so faulty. You know, oh, there's that much of this and there mm-hmm. really isn't quite as much of this mm-hmm. that when we got to the end, I thought they had secured a print right. of this famous American Love Conquers All happy ending version. Yeah. And, of course, was happy when instantly I was I was shown the contrary. For instance, maybe it's because I read Michael Palin's diary uh, there's two big, thick volumes of that now, and uh, it takes quite a while to get through it all, but it, it's worth it. And in one of them, he details his work on Brazil. And maybe because I read that book, I remember him being in the film more. Yeah. He's hardly in it. Yeah, he's got a couple of short scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually went home that night and tried to put on... I've never watched the Love Conquers All version. If you're not familiar with the history of Brazil... Um, read up on it online. There's a book that came out called The Battle of Brazil that chronicles the whole thing. It's really interesting. And Criterion put out first a Laserdisc and then a DVD and then another DVD set. It's all the same thing uh, with three different versions of the movie. There's the Terry Gilliam European Director's Cut, uh, which runs about two hours and 20 minutes. There's the theatrical cut, which runs about two hours and ten minutes. And then there's this third the thing. The Sid Scheinberg version. The studio version that, uh, I, I guess, loved your film, Terry. That's why, you know, he Don't you want it to be seen by as many people as possible? He honestly thought he was doing Gilliam a favor by butchering it. And, by making uh, it more commercial. And boy, is that version a revelation of what you can do. So I got ten minutes into it, and I actually fell asleep. Because I put it on before I was going to sleep. And, uh... Just the first 10 minutes blew my mind at how different it was. It opens the same way with that shot pushing into a store window on a TV, but then it cuts before the store window explodes because the city is under siege by terrorists. It it switches over to that restaurant scene, which is an unbelievable scene in the movie. None of the dialogue is in it. It pans across the restaurant, across the table once, and then there's another explosion, new scene. I mean, the first half hour of the movie is covered in 40 seconds of screen time. Wow. It's amazing. It's amazing that that's the version of the movie. So you watch that and you suddenly you feel even more lucky that 
the real version exists. Because look at what could have been. And the Battle of Brazil is worth reading, although if you do pick up the three DVD set, mm-hmm. there's a bonus feature that basically summarizes yeah, the book. Yeah, documentary, right. Page by page. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, if you're a student of film, you owe it to yourself to, to check out that Brazil set because it's a fascinating and history lesson. And as several people mentioned at the screening at the Portage, um, uh, our friend Paul Stone brought this up and some of my students brought it up. Talk about something suddenly seeming very current that, that there's this underlying theme in Brazil that there are terrorists everywhere and how do you battle them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the wake of nine 11, it just, the film seems more prescient than ever. It was so, so good. And I'm so fortunate that I got to see it. Uh, on the big screen, and after that was Night of the Comet. Which you have affection for. I do, yeah. In fact, the one thing I carry in my head about Night of the Comet, because I think I've seen it three times now, (laughs) once when it came out, once at your house, once at the Portage, is if it's like a word association thing, and someone comes up to me and says, Night of the Comet, I'll say, Patrick likes that. (laughs) Well, first of all, you got Catherine Mary Stewart again. <laughs> um, no, I I think it's one of these things that I didn't see it when it came out in 85. Um, I didn't even really see it when it was probably showing on HBO a lot in like 86 or 87. It's not a movie I saw as a kid. It was on HBO a lot. I, I'm sure, yeah. Um, it's not a movie I came to until much later on like VHS and... I just think it's a, this fascinating, weird little '80s anomaly that it on it has all the sort of trappings of it wants to be this '80s movie. It's like these two girls who want to be in a John Hughes movie, yeah, that keeps getting interrupted by the apocalypse. And I like that. I don't think all the pieces come together at all. The movie is a mess, but I like the messiness. And at the portage, the special guest was Kelly Mulroney, right. And she's in it. Yes. And at this point, it became very uncomfortable. So you left the theater. The the Q&As sometimes make me feel uncomfortable in a way that makes me want to change the channel. And so I, fle- I fled the theater. And I don't mean any disrespect to Miss Mulroney. Yes. But several Mulroney. people asked me. Yes. What is her last name? Mulroney. Mulroney. Yeah. Mulroney. Several people asked me during the Q&A and then later... If perhaps she was inebriated. Oh, really? Which I thought was interesting. But the only interesting part of her talk was the producers were split on what type of film they were making. Oh, see, I missed all this. I wish I would have heard this. One of them wanted it to be a comedy. Right. And the other one wanted it to be a serious special effects film. Okay. And she said up until the last minute, no one knew if that scene where they're sitting on the cop car and they have that pretty serious conversation yeah. about all the people who have died yeah. and all the kids at school. And and I believe the, the Kelly character sheds a tear. And it's one of the best scenes in the film. I really like that scene. And and she said it, it almost got cut out. Wow. Because they could not decide. But I like the way you're characterizing it. In fact, you saying that makes me like the film more. Yeah. It's a John Hughes film that keeps being interrupted by the apocalypse. <laughs> it doesn't all work. You know, there's the gang of weird zombies in the mall oh. that speak in weird one-liners, and uh, 
Not all the stuff with the scientists work, even though the, I like the, Jeffrey Lewis and I like Mary Warrenov. The tall, thin guy who's in charge of the security yeah, guards yeah. has always impressed me as someone's relative. <laughs> His performance is yeah. so yeah. awkward and amateurish and completely yeah. out of tone of the rest of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've never understood why Robert Beltran, is that his yeah. name? Yeah. He gets top billing in the movie. He's not interesting in any way, I don't think. I, I like the two girls so much, I don't I don't even need him in the movie. I would argue in Night of the Comet, he's given a sort of impossible character to play. But given his appearance in this, and as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, this was the year of Beltran, because he was in Eating Raul, too. Oh, okay. And he's good in that. Okay. You know, I've never seen Eating Raul. Well worth the hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, nothing came of that. In right. fact, I think he wound up doing a lot of TV. He was on um, a Star Trek show. He was on Star Trek Voyager for years. He was one of the leads on that oh, show. Oh, that's right. Which is really all I know him from, that and Night of the Comet, of course. Um, so I like Night of the Comet. I know it's not a perfect movie. I believe it's on Netflix Instant, if what we've said has interested you at all. There was an issue with Night of the Comet. Um <laughs> There was an issue with Brazil, a projection issue. Suddenly we had about a 20-minute intermission in the middle of Brazil. And then Night of the Comet, the reels were out of order. And the way that the new reel queued up, um, it immediately sort of gave this massive spoiler to anybody who hadn't seen the movie. And I think people might have been a little bit frustrated by that. And my reaction was, because I hadn't seen the film in a long time, you see something on the screen, right. they change reels, and my first reaction was, this can't possibly be what's next. Yeah, right. In fact, other people in the theater might have said, how did she get to that room? <laughs> yeah, right. And that happens so infrequently lately um, that we forget that that's what's involved in, in projection. It was great for me to see a couple of movies that I really like and, and one uh, masterpiece uh, screened on film with an audience. And then they showed 12 Monkeys. Right which we did a podcast on, which you can find it at thismovie.blogspot.com. Right, and for people who stayed, we didn't. Um, they showed Attack the Block, which yes. was one of my favorite films of last year, and then The Theater Bazaar. Which I believe is now available on DVD as well. Um, I have not seen The Theater Bazaar, and, I, and I'm okay with that. Um, we were just talking before we started recording about 12 Monkeys, and that you had known some people who stuck around and saw 12 Monkeys, and who said that they liked it better than Brazil. They liked Brazil. it much better than Brazil. And I think that is a popular opinion, I was saying, that I think when people assess Terry Gilliam's body of work, many people would say they prefer 12 Monkeys to Brazil. But having just rewatched Brazil, I don't understand how that's possible. Neither do I. Um, although, taking those two films as a group, and then adding uh, Munchausen, yeah. it's kind of amazing how often the whole terrorism thing yeah. crops up in his films, that that's a constant concern. Yeah. But um, I'm glad we have both films. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, should we talk about Do the Right Thing? Let's talk about Do the Right Thing. Okay. And uh, when we tire of talking about Do the Right Thing, I'm going to throw a garbage can through the window of a pizzeria. All right. Um, we will definitely be spoiling... Do the right thing. For those of you who have not seen it, um, please go out and see it immediately. Everybody should see this movie. Whether or not uh, you like it, everybody should see it, I think. 
Also, I believe we have to preface this conversation with the fact that we're both white. Mm. Good point. Good point. White, Um, white, white, white. A couple of weeks ago, you did a really great column on Driving Miss Daisy. Thank you. And it was about that movie's sort of ignorance of Uh, its inability to deal with race. Every time I return to Driving Miss Daisy, and I don't mean any disrespect to the fine actors in it. I've never seen it. I have respect for them. Sure. It's a minstrel show. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a minstrel show that's so cleverly engineered that white people can go see it and feel good about themselves. And I'm I'm rewatching Do the Right Thing for this podcast and Do the Right Thing now is being informed by the fact that I'm watching it and saying how on earth did Driving Miss Daisy win? How on earth did Driving Miss Daisy win? And I know I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I so remember that night when Kim Basinger walked forward and went off script and said, we have fine five films, we have five fine films nominated, um, but it might be the biggest irony that the film that told the biggest truth isn't nominated at all. And then she kept going, and I was like, that was really great. Um, I can't understand how you could watch both films and conclude that Driving Miss Daisy is better in any objective criteria you could name on the planet. You you can't understand that as somebody who knows about movies and is intelligent. But you do understand how the voters of the Academy could come to that conclusion. I can only conclude that the answer lies in too soon. Yeah. I because mean, I remember when the film was released, yeah. there were critics, white critics who went crazy saying that the film was going to cause riots in the theater. On the um, Criterion DVD, Spike Lee does a little intro and then a little like outro at the end. And uh, in, that, in, the last, in the last segment, he reads from some of these reviews and talks about those critics who call the movie irresponsible, who call the movie dangerous, who suggest that it's going to cause riots. And he expresses... Uh, that he takes great offense to that, that that the implication is that black people can't control themselves, that certainly they're going to Or that he's riot. made an irresponsible work of art. Yeah, well, there's one critic, and I don't remember the name, who talks about the garbage can throwing incident at the end of the movie and how stupid it is and how in that one act, Spike Lee has torpedoed his entire career. And... I don't know how this person can call himself a film critic, right? Because clearly, and I'm hoping that we'll talk about this tonight, the entire film mm-hmm. is built to lead up to that incident, right? And if that's his reaction, he doesn't understand the film at all, right? I'm amazed when I watch Do the Right Thing. So I wanted to do a podcast on Do the Right Thing because I knew that there's a lot to talk about. Even again, if even if people don't like the movie. Um, I think there's a lot to discuss, and a lot of movies have been made trying to sort of deal with the idea of race in America. Uh, last year, it was The Help, um, a couple which was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. A couple years ago, it was Crash, which won Best Picture. Um, I have never seen one that does it as well as Do the Right Thing. And, and I would agree, um, although we have very different opinions of Crash. Yes. And um, 
I'm watching it again, and I'm thinking, and I don't think this is just because I'm a bleeding heart white liberal, that Spike Lee is more even-handed in this film with both the black characters and the white characters than I have ever seen a white filmmaker be with black characters. Because you either get white filmmakers making an action film where blacks, especially in the 80s, were demonized, or bleeding heart white liberal filmmakers who fall all over themselves to do the opposite. The magical black man. The magical black man. That um, how astounding that last year would give us the help and then suddenly years and years ago we get a film where there are admirable black characters. There are black characters who are not admirable. There are black characters who are admirable in one scene and less than admirable in another. And the same for the white characters. Right. I'm watching the scene. Um, I think it's kind of the, 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 the fulcrum of the film. It's, it's, I think it's right in the middle, although I may be remembering it correctly. The scene where Danny Aiello sits down with John Turturro mm-hmm. and has that talk. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue is so good. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is this Spike Lee's writing or is it their acting? Obviously, it's probably both. But some really interesting dialogue, and it's all that's all one shot too, including yeah. when uh, when what's his name comes Smiling up to the window, right? And John Turturro tries to chase him out. I mean, that all happens in one shot. Um, the movie, with the exception of the fashion and the music, I mean, some of it is very much 1989 of its time, right? Um, which I'm okay with, but I think aside from that stuff. I'm amazed at how timeless the movie feels, which is both good and bad. It's good for the movie. It's like, boy, this movie is saying something really current that remains current, but it's sad when you talk about the state of affairs that we're still in because I don't think any of these problems have been addressed or not fixed. I don't don't think it can be fixed. And I've said this at school before. I think one of the mistakes we make as a nation is thinking we've gotten beyond race. Right. Because in in some ways, I, I don't think we have. Um, the music bothers me less than it used to. Mm-hmm. The music used to bother me a lot because um, I really like Bill Lee's orchestral music. Mm-hmm. In fact, you can almost call it jazz. And I almost wish the film had been completely scored with that. Okay. But when I watched the film last night in preparation for the podcast, I was sort of seeing it through a very specific lens, which I'll talk about in a second. And I began to see the music as yet another example of something the film does over and over again, which I like, Mm -hmm. which is to present a dichotomy. Mm -hmm. So at the heart of this film, there's a dichotomy. The most obvious one is between black and white. Right. And the music adds to that because as the film goes on, there's this constant interplay between Bill Lee's more traditional music and the contemporary hits of the day, like uh, Bet You Can't Stand It and, um, um, of course, Fight the Power. Fight the Power, right, which comes up again and again. Right. And I don't think this is original to me. I think it's in the BFI monograph on the film that Spike Lee announces his intention to continue to show us two sides of the coin, Mm -hmm. even in Samuel Jackson's opening monologue where the dialogue trope is he'll say something and then he'll say it in the opposite way. Mm -hmm. That he's announcing that this film is going to revolve around yin and yang. And throughout the film you see that in that many characters have matches that sort of match them. Mm -hmm. I actually think that um, um, uh, Danny Aiello's uh, pizzeria owner, Mm -hmm. that his 
I don't want to say doppelganger, but I think every character has a double in some way to continue with this theme is actually Demare. Okay. That Mookie's match is Smiley. Okay. In a very interesting way. Okay. Um, obviously, Smiley continually selling these pictures of both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King is another right. one of these dichotomies. And throughout the film, we're confronted with this or this, mm-hmm. this or this. Hey, Sal, why don't you put some brothers on the wall? Mm-hmm. It's my pizza place. I can do what I want. Mm-hmm. And that's the essential thing. Mm-hmm. And that it all leads to the end of the film, massive spoiler alert, when the Mookie character throws a garbage can through the window. Mm-hmm. And I think the film has been engineered to make that a Rorschach test of the audience. Ask people who have seen this film what they think of that act. And what they tell you will tell you more about them than what's in the film. Which Spike Lee has talked about. He said um, you know, that the question comes up using the title of the movie, Did, did Mookie Do the Right Thing by Throwing the Garbage Can? Um, and he said, no black audience member has ever asked me that question. It's only white people that have ever asked, uh, if he did the right thing, throwing the garbage can and his, you know, his take is, and, and he has come down very clearly on it. He says, yeah, he did. He's angry because he just saw, um, a human being murdered. And so throwing a garbage can through a window and the destruction of property seems to mean more to these white audience members than the death of Radio Rahim. That they're identifying with Sal's business just got fucked with. Not, hey, that guy was just murdered by the police. Which is explicit because at the end we hear Senor Love Daddy's little trail off. Mm-hmm. And it's the the fact that the city is going to start an investigation because we can't have this loss of property. Right pause right and then the dj adds uh we miss you radio rahim or right. whatever the, the trail off is right. but and again i will self-identify as a bleeding heart white liberal <laughs> i think there's two things at work here that spike lee clearly wants to discuss the fact that very often and this isn't just in black neighborhoods when people riot they're destroying things that will end up hurting them right you won't be able to get pizza anymore. Right. You, you realize you're you're destroying a business in your own neighborhood. But the way I've always interpreted it, and maybe I'm wrong, is that by throwing the garbage can, Mookie saved Sal's life. Which I have also read, um, that, that it was an action to sort of distract from they're about to beat Sal to death, and by turning the attention to the pizzeria, that it, that it saves his life. Um, I don't interpret the moment that way. I definitely interpret it as, you know, Mookie as a character is a guy who is sort of walking a line through the whole movie. Um, I think some people have accused him of being a little bit of a sellout because he's seen as a guy who doesn't really commit to any specific ideals except for money. His big repeated thing is I got to get paid. I got to pay. He's constantly counting his money. He wants his money from Sal. Um, He listens to what Buggin' Out has to say. But he's trying to calm him down. He listens to sort of the racist things that John Turturro says, but he's able to sort of brush them off. He's this guy who's sort of right in the middle, and finally at the end of the movie, he's put in a position where now he has to not choose a side, because I don't think the movie is about choosing sides, but he has to act. He finally has to do something. And so I do think uh, 
that it's a reaction to seeing his friend murdered. I don't necessarily think it's a premeditated thing to save Sal's life. But then I wonder, and I have a feeling he took great care in filming that shot, Mm -hmm. that he walks over, opens it, takes the garbage bag of garbage out of it, Mm -hmm. takes the can over the fence... And then he's walking towards the, the, the pizzeria, and it's a, it's, a, it's a reverse tracking shot. And I swear to you, there is no expression on his face. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. You, that's, that's the point. And, that, and that's the, what's great about the movie, and I haven't said so already. Um, I think this m- movie's amazing. I think it's a great, great, great movie. I think it's the best thing Spike Lee has ever done. And I'm a Spike Lee fan, for the most part. Um, So I really love the movie. And, I I mean, I have to admit, I do feel, oh gosh, hurt a little bit when Mookie throws the garbage can. And not because, hey, don't ruin that guy's business. It's not that. It's just, and I think that's where the movie comes down. I don't think the movie is saying that what Mookie is doing uh, is the right thing. I think it's saying, listen, his actions are justified to some extent, but the movie ultimately is very sort of sad about the way that we all treat one another. Um, and I, and I, I, that's what I get out of that moment that I'm sad because, you know, not too long before that scene, Sal is saying that he loves Mookie like a son. He loves, uh, this business. And I'm not saying like, Oh, he loves serving the people in the neighborhood. It means a lot to him. These people and, have come to mean a lot to him. And I find that speech very sincere. Yeah. They grew up on my food, which is interesting because later when Buggin' Out is trying to start the boycott, mm-hmm. the young people that are presented, I don't know what to call quite call that group, who um, the are group sometimes that, the, group the that Martin Lawrence is in? Yeah, yeah the okay. kibitzers right. who, uh, during the, the sequence with uh, John Savage on his bicycle, they're really trying to foment trouble. Right. But when Buggin' Out's trying to start the. Uh, the boycott, the girl in the group says, I grew up on that pizza. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting moment, too, at the end where, and this is sort of the moment that seals the fate of the rest of the movie, when, um, you know, they want to get a slice of pizza. No, we're closed. And Sal says, no, okay, let them in one slice. And it's a measure of how, how much I love the film that ever since I've seen it, since the first time, I want him to not open. I don't. Right. I want him to not open right. the door. And yet he's he's doing something sincere and gentle. Listen, here's people who want my pizza. I want to give them my pizza, right? And then this group of young people they come in and they're awful. I mean, he's done them a favor basically, and they come in and they're just awful. <laughs> they're just obnoxious. And so again, the movie is is constantly back and forth in like, oh, good, they're going to get pizza. Oh, but they're being such jackasses. <laughs> like what? And another example of that, and I think it's one of the few moments that that don't work, mm-hmm. or I'm misunderstanding it because I have a lot of respect for this actress. Once they set the pizzeria on fire, um, sister, mother, sister, mother, sister, yeah, is shouting, burn it down, to burn it down. Yeah. A few minutes later. She's crying and very upset. Right. And and the mayor has to console her. Right. What what happened? I think, you know, I, I'm always surprised when I get to that moment. That it's heat of the moment. Yeah. And then second what, thoughts. What, what, what have we done? 
And I'm always surprised when we get to that moment of burn it down, burn it down, because maybe I've just been so conditioned by past movies that uh, her and the mayor are are presented as sort of the elder statesmen of the block, the people who have been through more, who have seen more, and certainly the mayor um, is the guy who's saying, let's take a step back. You we don't are going to do something that we're going to regret. Right, and you just sort of assume because she is... I know not according to what you're saying, but she's sort of not his his opposite. But she, you know, she's oh, she's the female version of him or yeah. whatever, just as presented in the movie because they're both they're the two older characters. You just assume that she's going to sort of take that same stance, and so when she's standing in the street yelling "Burn it down, burn it down," it's jarring. Um, but yeah, I think then that moment where she's sort of weeping, I I do think that makes sense. And I I, I just want to spend one minute. Ossie Davis and Ruby <laughs> D are so amazing in this film. I think I like Ruby D less than you do. I can't say enough good things about Ossie Davis. Um, and I remember uh, that they later appeared in Spike Lee's uh, a Jungle Fever as Wesley Snipes' parents. And uh, Ossie Davis is just given some very difficult lines and things to sell in that film. But I remember Ossie Davis was also the coach uh, the football coach in uh, school days. Yeah. And I remember this must have been on some bonus feature or something um, that Ossie Davis and Ruby D had been very active in the civil rights movement and were sort of elder statesmen for black actors. And that after Spike Lee established his career, Ossie Davis said something like, you say the word and we'll be there. And if you don't have hotel money, we will sleep on any couch. And think about the, the caliber of actor we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, right. right. Um, that they they sort of walk the walk. Um, Ossie Davis's the mayor is kind of an amazing creation. Yeah. In that he he pretty much avoids every cliche of what that character could have been. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie's a weird mix of performance styles. Yeah. Because you have great, great performances like Danny Aiello and Ossie Davis. And it was interesting because I looked up, I looked the movie up on Wikipedia in preparation for this. And I was just reading some of the critics notices and it got nominated for a lot of things, not Oscars. Uh, Spike Lee was nominated for uh, screenplay. And I believe Danny Aiello was nominated for supporting actor. And that was actually something I was seeing uh, down the list was that Danny Aiello was getting nominated a lot. And again, I don't want to cry racism on the part of Hollywood, but you've singled out one of three white actors in the movie Plus, to give all of your awards recognition. Is it just because it's an ensemble? I would almost argue that Aiello's a lead. Yeah, I mean, or you could argue that everybody's supporting. Yeah, but yeah. Because of screen time. Right. And he is great in the movie. He's so great. Ossie Davis, so great. But then you have these other weird performances by even Spike Lee, who's not a professional actor, uh, or his sister, Joa Lee, and there are times where it feels like they are in a high school play, and I don't mind it. That's the thing. It's this weird mix that adds up to a whole that I like, and part of it, I think, is even Spike Lee's incredibly sort of stylized approach that he makes it work. I mean, there's shots where characters are waiting for the scene. There's a shot, I believe it's him and his sister standing on some steps 
and the shot begins, and they pause, and then they start walking and talking. Yeah. And it's like, oh, normally they would cut out that beat where they waited for to hear action. That's always stuck out to me. But the movie is filled with things like that. And again, because I like the movie so much, it's part of the whole now where I like those things about the movie. In a lesser movie, maybe I would be saying, these are mistakes, but it's part of this weird overall aesthetic that I think really, really works. In terms of the performances... Um, I was struck by the fact that I really liked uh, the Martin Lawrence character and his <laughs> little speech impediment. Mm -hmm. And I wish he had kept doing that kind of thing in movies instead right. of what he later became. Right. Um, the three guys on the corner. Yeah. Robin Harris and Frankie Faison, and I don't know the third guy. but um, That comes across as documentary. Yeah. It's yeah. very interesting. And, I'm, and I have to guess he let the man live. Yeah, I believe so. Um, but I think my favorite moment is, well, first of all, they have that wonderful speech about how the Koreans can open the store and why aren't there any black-owned businesses. So the film is explicitly addressing that. Mm -hmm. But I think my favorite moment is when Robin Harris just stands up and walks over and starts peeing on the building. <laughs> and you really get an idea of how these guys have it. Yeah, right. Would you say that are they, are they sort of the mirror of the Martin Lawrence group? Yeah. Is that the future of the Martin Lawrence group? You know, just sort of these observers? Um, I hope not. The other mirror... Well, these, those guys are observers, and the Martin Lawrence group are like instigators, actually. Right, so. and they're, they're fated to be observers. Right. Um, bad critics called the, the, the trio on the corner a Greek chorus, but I don't, I don't think that works. No. I've actually read that. That, as I was watching it again, and obviously trying to find all these mirrors Samuel, or... Samuel Jackson would be the Greek course, if anything. Yeah, okay. or dichotomies. Um, it occurred to me, and I never noticed this before, that at the end of the film, the, the fire department is trying to put out the fire um, at Sal's Famous, and people in the neighborhood are attacking the firemen and making it hard for them to put out the fire, so the firemen turn the fire hoses on the protesters, mm -hmm. and of course we have all these images of civil rights struggles from the 60s, but then I thought, oh, that's another reason why we have the fire, the fire plug hydrant. scene right. earlier, right. Um, where they open it up to cool off, and right. I thought that was such an interesting juxtaposition. Absolutely. You know, the movie is filled with... I, I was watching it with Erica, and she had never seen it, and she didn't get to finish watching it. She's very pregnant. She went to bed. Um, but she watched, like, the first half hour and just said, okay, so is it just sort of this, like, slice of life thing? Because it just keeps cutting around to these different groups on this one street on this one day. And I said, well, no. It, this It's going somewhere. Um, but even during those sequences where it's just setting up characters and laying the groundwork, I think in a way that is kind of subtle, even though there's nothing subtle about Do the Right Thing. Uh, which doesn't mean it's not thoughtful, just because it's sort of heavy-handed, I don't think means bad. And I think one of the reasons why I think it's his best film is because he's able to control some of those heavy-handed mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. that I would argue get out of hand in School Days or Jungle Fever. Yeah. Um, and I think the the one of the only remnants of the other Spike Lee what we might call the student filmmaker, Spike Lee, not that I'm trying to sound superior, um, is the, the now famous sequence where the different characters have the... Talk right to the camera. The racist monologues. Which he then does, again, in 25th Hour. 
um, except it's about 9-11, basically. But it's that same characters looking right into the camera, spewing these hateful things. Um, and I personally think it would be a better film without that. Mm-hmm. But because there isn't a lot more of that, um, recently on cable I saw Jungle Fever again uh, for the first time since it originally came out. And I was struck by there are scenes in Jungle Fever that we don't get in mainstream American films anymore Mm -hmm. where intelligent characters sit around and talk about something that's real Mm -hmm. in an intelligent way. I think now that kind of entertainment's been ghettoized (laughs) um, to uh, cable TV, that if that's what you want to see, there's all these great TV shows on cable TV. Um, But again, this tendency... Um, of spikes to go super dramatic, um, I thought was encapsulated for me by the end of Jungle Fever. Spoiler <laughs> alert. When a young girl offers to perform a sexual act on Wesley Snipes because she's a crack addict and the camera zooms into Wesley Snipes' face and he screams no for a really, really long time and that's the end of the film. That being said, I really like the fact that at the end of school days, a main character sort of goes on this weird, symbolic, abstract journey that ends with him looking at the camera and saying, wake up, mm-hmm. blackout, end of school days. And that's the first line in Do yeah. the Right Thing. I think that's terrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that's, you know, that's Do the Right Thing, announcing its intentions none too subtly immediately Right off the bat, that the first line in the movie is, wake up. And speaking of Spike Lee's early films, I did want to add that I remember seeing She's Gotta Have It Mm -hmm. at the late lamented Fine Arts Theater on, did you ever go there? Mm -mm. Oh, man, it was terrific. I don't know what it was before it was a movie theater, but that was a terrific place to see a movie. And you had to go see it there because that's the only theater it played in. Mm-hmm. So we drive into the city and we say, and we see she's got to have it, which I still remember liking a lot. And then Spike gets a little bit more popular and School Days is released. And that plays um, at the Hillside Theater, which I have a tremendous amount of uh, love and respect for because it's the theater where I saw my first movie because I grew up in Bellwood, Illinois, which is where the theater was. But the neighborhoods around the hillside um, are all black now. And so if you want to see school days, you have to go to the hillside, which is the black theater. Right. And I very uh, very well remember that uh, Jan and I drove to hillside to see school days, and we were the only white people in the audience. And then you knew Spike was getting popular, because when Do the Right Thing came out, it played in a theater near you. <laughs> so that's the progression of Spike Lee. The summer of 89, uh, you know, which is the summer that Batman came out. I mean, these movies just couldn't be more different, and it's nice to know that at least there was some thoughtful stuff coming out of a major studio in 1989. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did something on the website about Spike Lee and Spike Lee movies, and I posited a theory that I would say more than half of the movie-going audience at large immediately dismisses Spike Lee in the way that, you know, people sometimes will dismiss, like, Woody Allen. You say, have you seen the new... Oh, I don't like Woody Allen. So, therefore, I'm not going to see any of his movies. And Spike Lee, I think, gets written off. Um, 
And I think part of it is because he has been very outspoken in the press and people don't necessarily always like what he says. So they write him off as a person. But I think his movies have a reputation for being preachy um, and concerned with uh, not always race, but perhaps issues that the regular moviegoer either isn't interested in or doesn't want to be confronted with. <laughs> or is going with. to the movies to ignore. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it makes me sad. And again, I don't want to continue to cry racism, but I think there's a weird racism when somebody just makes this blanket statement of, oh, I don't like Spike Lee. Because I, I feel like if you were to press that person and say, okay, can you tell me three Spike Lee movies that you've seen, I would say nine out of ten times that person couldn't name one. Then they're just objecting to the public persona. Yeah, I just feel like... I remember there was an outcry. I remember this very well. When Malcolm X came out, he... <laughs> Said take the day off school? Yeah, yeah, he strongly suggested in the press that young people should take the day off school to go see the movie. Yeah. And, oh, my God, because, you know, civilization would stop if kids cut school. And and people saying things like, well, no white filmmaker would ever make that. Well, no, he's he's allowed to say anything you want. Personally, I thought it was an interesting promotional gimmick. Sure. I just feel like, and again, this maybe speaks to a larger problem in Hollywood, that Spike Lee has just been sort of written off as the black filmmaker. Like, he's the voice of black America. Um, and John Singleton started to have some yeah. of that, you know, uh, with Boys in the Hood, and then quickly that all went away because he was revealed to not be a very talented filmmaker. Um, but I really like Spike Lee. Even when his movies aren't good, I think they're always worth seeing. But I think it's very interesting that Spike Lee's career now breaks into two very different pieces. Mm -hmm. That there's the early six films. I'm not exactly sure where it, that ends. That we have the films where clearly he's very passionate and he's doing one thing. And now he's a much more commercial filmmaker. Unless he got to the point where he didn't feel like writing scripts like that anymore. Clearly, he's either no longer interested in making social problem films, right. or he's not allowed to. Yeah, I don't know. Right, Inside Man was his most commercial movie, um, and by far the biggest success he's ever had. And I really enjoyed Inside Man. Yeah, but I I don't see how it's a Spike Lee movie. I think there are I think there are elements of Spike Lee in that movie. I really do. Um, but not enough to make me say, like, oh, I can't wait for the next Spike Lee movie. Which, by the way, is going to be a remake of Old Boy. That's his next movie. Hmm. Which I'm fascinated by on paper, but I feel like it's going to be a disaster. Um, let's go back to Do the Right Thing. Yep. So, Radio Rahid has these two giant rings on his hands, yep. right? And it's a reference to Night of the Hunter, and also to your column, Shitting on the Classics. <laughs> <laughs> but also, again, you see... Is that what it is? Is that all it is? Is the reference to Night of the Hunter secondary? Because I, I, I'm anticipating what you're going to say. Is that is the reference to Night of the Hunter sort of incidental and that that trope exists, um, again, to show this dichotomy? 
the, the one, two sides of the same thing. The one thing I can't understand, and I think Bill Nunn plays the character really, really well, that Radio Rahim is a character who really wants tremendous respect from people, and yet he doesn't give very many people respect. No. Think of his treatment of the Korean store owner right. over the batteries, and if he truly believes that love will win out in the end, then why does he treat Sal that way? Even right. the first time he comes in, when he's just this angry person. Right, and again, but that's... It's that's, almost like the character is being asked to be to be two very different things depending on the scene, or Spike writes the monologue and really wants it in the film, or is he suggesting the character's a hypocrite? I think I think some of the latter. I mean I, I do, and I and I, I think it's what you said. It's this character who who demands respect but who does it through intimidation and uh kind of bullying and I think you know whether or not it's part of the discussion on race I feel like Spike Lee is saying that there's a segment of the population on on any side within any race that does that very thing that demands that you respect me um but does nothing to necessarily earn that respect except for be the loudest or the meanest or the biggest bully and we see that with Buggin' Out at the end. When he comes in, the level of his ferocity, mm-hmm. now that he has right. some muscle, right, right, right. considering that we're talking about putting pictures of people right. on a wall, right. is astounding. And again, but that's an issue where both sides sort of have a point. And, and there again, much like Mookie throwing the garbage can through the window, it's a perfect dramatic situation. It's Sal's place. Right. Sal can do whatever he wants. Right. But clearly, if Sal was a better businessman, right. he would recognize that all of his customers were black right. and put some brothers up on the wall. Right. That being said, Buggin' Out says, put some brothers on the wall. Sal says, you get your own place, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Which doesn't make Sal a bad person. It does make him a bad businessman, though. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, when Buggin' Out says, you know, all of your customers are, we're the ones who spend the money here, you know, couldn't we be represented? He has a point, he just doesn't have the right to demand it, you know what I mean? It, 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 the movie, I don't think, provides any easy answers, and it shouldn't, and that's part of the problem with so many other movies that deal with race. And it leads to that beautiful moment, <laughs> it is just an astonishing shot and really kind of disturbing and scary when Smiley finally tacks the picture up on the wall Mm -hmm. and he got what he wanted, but then we get the reverse shot and there's fire behind his head Mm -hmm. and that smile on his face is demonic. Yeah. You know, I I don't want to talk too much about uh, Crash. We did a podcast on Crash in the early days of F this movie. And to me, Crash has one scene uh, where Matt Dillon as a racist police officer, rescues Tandy Newton from a burning car, even though she's black, and he uh, sexually assaulted her earlier in the movie. And so you have this dichotomy that you're talking about. And as He's unlike- a racist asshole. And as unlikely as that might be, yes, that scene is yes. the reason I love the film. Because how often in American films do we get 
he's an asshole and a hero. Right. And I and, agree with you. And it, and, and it was... It was physically disturbing to me in the theater to mm-hmm. watch that scene mm-hmm. because at first she's terrified mm-hmm. that it's this guy. Um, and at the end, he's cradling her. I recognize the flaws of the rest of the film, and they are many. But that scene... It's a good scene. And my point is, Crash has that one scene, right? <laughs> yes. That one scene is all of Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Do the Right Thing sustains that for an entire movie. Um, and that's why I just feel like, and here's Crash racking up Oscars, uh, and, uh, you know, of course now it's sort of universally. But here loathed. again, we might be talking about too soon because what year did Crash come out? 2005, 2006. Well, it was finally okay to start I, I talking guess. about something that Spike Lee did better 20 years before. And I just, I guess I just feel like Crash isn't interested in actually talking about it. Again, except for that one scene, Crash provides... Very easy answers, and it's all Crash is way and... too interested in the connection. Yeah. I know I might be speaking out of turn, but I seem to remember the very end thing mm-hmm. when the final two cars crash. I, you're right. It just it Ugh. makes you come on, and and it, it goes out on like a laugh where it's like we spent two hours learning that like okay guys we need to address racism in an adult way and we have to confront these feelings that we have and let's be grown-ups about this because people are being hurt people are dying but then it's like the two cars crash and the black lady's annoyed and the asian family doesn't speak english and we all walk out of the theater laughing ho, oh, we'll never get along what the hell is that it negates the entire movie yeah um i'm 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 glad we're having this talk about crash <laughs> um I did want to bring up uh, the shot that I just mentioned where Smiley finally pins this homemade colored picture to the wall and and it's the definition of a Pyrrhic victory. I think that's where the film should end. And like many other films, this film ends three times. Mm -hmm. That is a beautiful fade out. Mm -hmm. And I think it says everything you need to say. However, fade in, it's the next morning. We get this little tag, and there's the scene where Mookie goes to get paid. Right. Um, and then you get the two quotes. Right. Which I don't think you need, I think. Sure. But my question is, do you think we need the scene, be, the final scene between Mookie and Dan A.L.? I don't. And to some extent, it's a little bit like... Um, the the psychiatrist at the end of Psycho. I think if the movie ends where you're suggesting it ends, yeah, people are very upset walking out of the movie. Oh, right okay. Thing. Very upset because, as you describe, I mean, this shot is kind of chilling, and the implication is scary. And so, if the movie ends there, it's like, what am I? What, what am I supposed to make of this? Okay. And so, there's a little bit of a come down that. People are sort of okay. I mean, Mookie is okay. I think it's very symbolic that Mookie is wearing his Sal's Pizza shirt yeah. when he goes to see Sal. Um, and and supposedly Spike Lee wrote a version of that scene that was sort of more on the nose, more of like an obvious reconciliation between the two. Because it's very interesting what they what the two don't talk about. Right. And 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 obviously chose to go with something a little less uh, on the nose, which I think, 
again, is the right thing to do because I don't think it's the kind of movie that demands this neat, happy ending. Not that, you know, not that the two of them reconciling is a happy ending. The block has still been burned. Radio Rahim is still dead. Um, I do like um, Danny Aiello balling up the money and throwing it at him. And um, in a weird way, because he has expressed paternal feelings toward Mookie, yeah. I wonder if even in his anger, he means the extra bills to sort of be this odd severance because the, the pizza place is no more. Sure. But I would almost just want the scene because the standoff where neither of them will pick up the money and then Mookie does yeah, right, is right. really nice. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting choice that Spike Lee played that part and he cast himself in all of his movies in the early, in the early films. Um, up through maybe Clockers, although is he in Jungle Fever? Yeah. He is. Okay. He's, 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 the, friend. Best friend. he's the best friend. That's right. Um, he's a teacher in that. Oh, in that okay. movie, his character's a teacher. <laughs> um, I need to rewatch that movie. This movie did make me want to rewatch some older Spike Lee. Um, and again, I don't think his performance is up to the level of some of the other actors, but I also think the performance really works for that quality that you were talking about earlier in that it's sort of blank and that we end up, I think, filling in some of our, our own things. Um, we fill Mookie up with our own attitudes or, or feelings. But you are right that very, very often he's asked to be a mediator, not only between the two Italian brothers. Mm -hmm. And I love the scene where Turturro is beating up his brother and saying, I love you. And, um, Vito says, Mookie listens to me. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really nice moment. But also, Mookie is often the mediator between Sal's and the black community. Right. And I can't help thinking, this is one of the reasons why Sal hired Mookie. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good for business. It's good PR. Right. And again, I think that's why that, that moment where he finally stops being a mediator and starts being sort of a participant when he throws the garbage can is even more significant. And I also think it's effective that Spike Lee cast himself in that part just for that scene that here's Spike Lee, the writer and director of the movie playing the part of the guy who, I, I mean, I, again, I don't want to necessarily accuse Mookie of instigating a riot because that, you know, the cops murdering, Radio, he uh, sort of already did that, but I think it's I think it's significant that it's the writer and director of the movie throwing the trash can through the window. But as my wife pointed out, Mookie is in a different place at the end of the film, besides the fact that he's out of a job, because the film opens with him waking up in his sister's apartment. Mm -hmm. His sister informs us that she's been carrying him, and at the end of the film, he wakes up um, in his baby mama's apartment. Yes, and. Um, he even tells Sal, I have to go see my kid. Yeah. So th there is some sort of growth there, although in what direction, I don't know. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, I think we could just keep talking circles around the movie because there's so much to talk about and uh, we won't do that. But if you guys haven't seen Do the Right Thing, you really, really should. I don't know what else to say. I, I really love that movie. And yet another example of the Academy getting it wrong and they will forever, and that's okay, you know. I still have hope, because 
Maybe no. it's because all of you guys come over and it's kind of a nice excuse to get together. Yes. But I have hope that it, they'll fix themselves. Do the Right Thing came out over 20 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. The artist won Best Picture this year. I mean, those movies couldn't be... And I'm not saying there's not room for both movies, but... There was a brief period in the 70s (laughs) where a few good films won some Oscars. Yeah, because that's a lot of what was being made in the 70s, you know? Um, And now, Do the Right Thing is the exception, not the rule. Um, Thanks for listening, everybody. JB, thanks thanks for talking about Do the Right Thing. True. And I would just like to add that Elvis was a hero to some, but he never meant shit to me. 